From Entrepreneur Media, this is Problem Solvers, a show in which entrepreneurs do what entrepreneurs do best, solve unexpected problems in their business. We were completely wrong. And I'm just like, it's not selling. It was like, we have to start from scratch. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. Have you ever heard the story of how Intel was saved? It's a pretty good one. Andy Grove, I believe, and Gordon Moore, if I'm remembering my my business history correctly. She's remembering it correctly. This, by the way, is Katie Milkman, a expert on change for many reasons that I will explain in a moment. But the thing to know here about Intel is that in the mid-1980s, they had been doing a really good job of selling memory chips. And then competition from Japan came along, and suddenly the memory chip business was not a very good business to be in anymore, and Intel was really suffering. And so Andy and Gordon are sitting around in their offices trying to figure out what to do. Things were going badly, and they had a conversation that was very frank where they said, we're probably going to get fired, (laughs) and we're going to lose these roles. Someone else is going to come in with an obvious mandate for change because the business is not going well. And the conversation they had that is supposedly, you know, legendary, it supposedly happened was, what is that new person going to do with that change mandate? What will they do when they have our job or our jobs? And the answer they came up with was, well, this new person would get out of the memory business. And so now they're sitting around and thinking, well, I guess if that's what the new person would do, why don't we just do it? And this is hard stuff. I mean, they were in the memory business. This meant laying off more than 7,000 people, almost a third of Intel's workforce. It was agonizing, shutting down plants, letting people go. But it's the thing that saved the business. And why am I telling you this? Well, I'm telling you this because this is a great story, not just about recognizing that change has to happen, but figuring out what that change is. And that's why I wanted to talk to Katie. Because, you know, there's two different things here when we're talking about change. There is recognizing the need to change, and then there is knowing which change to actually make. And why is Katie the perfect person to talk to about this? Hi, I'm Katie Milkman, and I'm a professor at the Wharton School and author of the new book, How to Change. And I'm also the host of the podcast, Choiceology, from Charles Schwab and co-director of the Behavior Change for Good Initiative at the Wharton School. Katie knows a thing or two about how change happens and how to make that change. And the reason I called her up is because I really wanted to dig into this idea of how to decide which change to make. Let's say you already realize there is a problem. There is no question. Change has to happen. But of course, in front of you are many different options. Which one do you take? And when we spoke, the very first thing that she thought of was this story from Intel. But of course, we can get much deeper than that about how to make really hard decisions, about how to project which is the right decision to make. And that is the conversation that we are going to have today on Problem Solvers. It is solving the problem of which direction to go in, which change to make. All coming up after the break. 
Do you need to upgrade your business's Wi-Fi performance? Is your Wi-Fi slowing down when you work from home because you're sharing it with your family? Do you wish you had your own secure Wi-Fi network separate from the rest of the house? Netgear Business's Wi-Fi 6 products represent the latest in Wi-Fi technology. They deliver unmatched speed, coverage, security, and capacity for growing your business or working from home. They're also packed with features like the ability to create a separate network at home dedicated to your work. Plus, seamless management helps keep your guests and employees connected and your data protected, providing visibility from anywhere at any time. The world runs on Wi-Fi, and small businesses and home offices are no exception. With Netgear Business Solutions, you get the very best Wi-Fi performance to keep you connected whether you're in the office, working from home, or on the go. Visit netgear.com business and use the code SOLVERS10 at checkout to save 10%. That is netgear.com business with the code SOLVERS10 at checkout to save 10%. All right, we're back. So again, I am talking with Katie Milkman, professor at the Wharton School and author of the new book, How to Change. And she had started by telling us this story about how Intel was saved, thanks to a very bold change. And here's what she thinks is the big lesson from that story. So the reason I'm telling that story is because one of the insights that I really like about change that I normally share in thinking about how to change, but I think applies nicely here, is that when we advise other people, it gives us a clarity that can be really valuable about what the right path is that we often don't have when we think about our own problems. And in that example, what they were doing was thinking, what's going to happen to someone else. And being able to take that outsider perspective, there's a fair amount of research suggesting it can make you more dispassionate and a, a clearer thinker, a better observer. When we're thinking about someone else's problems, they don't feel so personal. We don't escalate commitment to a already chosen course of action. We can see the pros and cons more clearly somehow. And it's a little trick to play on yourself is to say, let me actually just pretend I am the third person that can be helpful. It's also related to the idea of pre-mortems, which I think are underused, where if you think what's going to go wrong down, if I go down this path and really try to enumerate all the problems that can help you make better decisions. Annie Duke, who I really like, wrote this wonderful book, How to Decide, that (laughs) talks about the power of negative thinking, right? We all talk about the power of positive thinking, but she talks a lot about the power of negative thinking. The big reason for that is that if we can think and enumerate all of these problems, make do a pre-mortem, you know, if this dies, what will be the causes? It can give us more clarity around the likely barriers and obstacles we're going to hit. So if we're trying to decide what change to make, it seems to me that those are two things we would want to do. One is try to give advice to someone else in your shoes so you can take yourself out of the situation, be more dispassionate. You know, you can think more clearly about the pros and cons. And then also do this careful pre-mortem on the different courses of change you could take. What will go wrong if you go down that path rather than just, you know, trying to lay out the costs and benefits of each of the choices that face you, which by the way is awesome. You know, it's good advice. It's old advice. We should do it. But these are a couple tools that might help you do it more effectively and without a lot of the internal biases that prevent us from making good decisions. So you've raised two interesting 
subjects that then have me asking follow-up questions to both, and I can't do it at the same time. So we'll just try to take them in order and see if I can remember the others. Let's start with giving advice. So normally what you're saying is that there's a lot of value in giving other people advice. And what you're doing is just sort of turning it back on yourself and say, well, what would it be like if you were giving yourself the advice? But can you dig into that a little bit more? Why, why is why is advice giving a valuable tool in change? This is an insight from Lauren Eskris Winkler, who's a really brilliant psychologist, and she's about to be a professor at the Kellogg School at Northwestern University. And her insight is that when we give advice to other people, it does a few things. One, it leads us to feel more confident that if I'm giving advice, I must have a clue. So if someone asks us, or even if we just pony up. It builds our confidence to be in that position of power or that position of status as advice giver. Another thing it does is it causes us to introspect more deeply than we would if we were just thinking about this for ourselves because you want, don't want to goof and you actually have the need to elaborate if you're giving advice to someone else. And then the third thing it does is there's something called the saying is believing effect. When you say it, you believe it more. And of course, you're going to feel like a hypocrite if you tell someone else to do something and then don't do it yourself. So the trick from the example I gave is that it may be possible to use this insight simply by putting yourself in the hypothetical position of advice giver and sort of turning the situation inside out. We're good in many cases at sort of acting things out and and doing hypotheticals, and it may be possible. I actually don't know of research on this, so I'm extrapolating from what we know about the power of advice giving, but it seems likely that it would be valuable just to reframe the situation, and that famous story is doing exactly that. And so it may have many of the same benefits that giving advice to a, a real other person would have. Of course, you could take it all the way there if you're trying to make change and use someone else who's facing a similar situation. You could call them on the phone and start giving, you know, <laughs> and talking it through. They can give you their advice, you give them your advice. And, and in the process, you may learn some really useful insights, both because they have some good wisdom to offer and through the process of exchanging your own suggestions. Right. I feel like you just created a crisis matchmaking service that needs to exist where people could just... It really does. Yeah. Reminds me of something that I hear so often, which is somebody say, I gave this advice to so many people and now I had to take it myself. Like I just heard that from Stacey London, who if you are familiar with the What Not to Wear, the show that was on TV for a long time. Anyway, she was the host of that. And she recently became an entrepreneur because she kind of reached the end of the road with television. And she told me that part of that transition, which was very hard in letting go of one identity and adopting another, was that she had told so many people over the course of so many years, you have to let go of who you were to become who you are. And that it finally dawned on her that she needed to take that advice herself, which is funny because oftentimes I suppose the reason why we're so good at giving advice is because we don't have to follow it. So it's like easier to say the hard things or to think the hard things because then we just hand it off to somebody else and it's somebody else's problem. But eventually it's our problem and we have to do it too. I think that's the sort of one of the many brilliant things about this insight that Lauren had about it, the power of advice giving is because it's someone else's problem, we may be more willing to suggest things that we wouldn't be willing to do. But then once we've suggested them, we start to believe them. We start to feel hypocritical if we don't do them. So it's this magic sauce where you get yourself to get behind a risk you wouldn't necessarily be comfortable telling yourself to take. And then in the end, you convince yourself to take it. Right. And then the other part of what you were talking about, which is to 
pre-mort, right? To think through what could go wrong. So here's here's what I thought of as soon as you told me that, which is, well, don't you then run the risk of talking yourself out of every option? Sure, you do. But I think this is a really important process if you are committed to change and you're not worried about mustering the motivation to go forward with it and you're trying to choose which path is likely to lead to the best outcomes. I think you're absolutely right, though, that if you hyperanalyze it could be a barrier to making any change whatsoever because it may make you feel overwhelmed. And in fact, there's some really nice research that was done by Steven Spiller at UCLA showing that if you make a lot of different plans for a lot of different goals at the same time, it can be overwhelming and it can lead you actually to be less likely to follow through, even though going through that process of elaboration about your plans normally increases follow through. And I think this is a really related phenomenon if you elaborate on a lot of different change paths, it could be that it's it's overwhelming if there's a chance you're going to back down. So I, I absolutely agree that that's a risk associated with this process. But I think that's a risk with any planning process. And it doesn't mean we should stop planning, right? <laughs> it, it means probably we need to think about other tools and tactics to make sure we follow through if we really think it's important to make a change. And, you know, there's strategies like pre-commitment and where you tell someone else, I've committed to this change, or you can literally put money on the line that you'll have to forfeit if you haven't made one of the following changes in the next six months. And then that's going to make it less likely you procrastinate or, or fall down on the job. So I think there's, there's ways we can offset that risk. Can you take me into a few more of those? What I mean, that sounds like essentially you're you're anchoring yourself to a decision once you've made it so that you don't back out of it. Right. If you're convinced and this is an important aspect, right, if you if you're like, I'm not sure if change is really the right decision and I need to do some more analysis of these different plans and it may be that I should stay where I am, then this would be a really bad idea. If you're convinced that a change is right and worried, you're going to talk yourself out of it as you get into the weeds, then using a tool like a commitment device is a really good strategy for ensuring that you don't lose your nerve. And these commitment devices are, they basically look like a rule, they they look like an incentive or a rule imposed by an outsider, which we're really used to, right? You're used to getting a speeding ticket because the government says, hey, it's not okay to go that fast. It's bad for you. You might be feeling impulsive and want to go that fast. We're going to fine you. It's weird to think about fining yourself for a bad behavior you might take, but it can be a really effective tactic. And there's research showing, for instance, that when you give smokers the ability to find themselves if they don't quit. It increases quit rates by about 30% compared to just a standard quit smoking program. So it's, it's a really useful tool, but absolutely needs to be used with care to avoid committing yourself to something you'll later regret. Right. So I guess in that case, I, I almost skipped out of the phase that I, I had centered us in, right, which was figuring out if that change is is right. So what else should somebody be considering or doing or running themselves through as a means of figuring out if a change is right for them? Yeah, it's a great question. I think one thing that's really useful is thinking about social information. We've already talked a little bit about having conversations with other people, maybe to give them advice, because that may turn out to motivate you in a funny, circular way. But in general, one of the best sources of information in the world is learning from others who have been there before. So if you're trying to think about a change you want to take, it can normalize it if you talk to other people who've made that change and understand what their process was and help you understand and what are the pros and cons a lot better than you could if you just try to write it down on a piece of paper or research it on the internet. One of the tactics that I've actually studied and wrote about in my book that I think is vastly underused is the simplest of, of all, which is copy and pasting 
things that have worked for other people. And my collaborator, Angela Duckworth, and I have studied this. And one of the things that always boggles our mind is when students come to us struggling in a class, asking for our guidance on how to do better. And we ask them, you know, have you asked any of your friends who are doing well in the class what's working for them? And we get a lot of blank stares. People Mm -hmm. rarely actually tap into the sources of information really deliberately in their social networks. We often do through sort of osmosis or, or just like it happens naturally. So for instance, if you're randomly assigned a college roommate who earns higher grades, your grades improve. So it's happening somehow, but it's normally not a super deliberate process. And what we found in our research is that if you just tell people, go deliberately copy and paste a strategy that's working for someone else, who's pursuing the same goal, that improves outcomes rather than just telling people to make a simple plan, for instance. So if you're thinking about how do I make a change or what's the right change, trying to think about is there social information I can gather from other people who've pursued a similar path or faced a similar dilemma or actually made these changes and what can I copy and paste that worked for them seems like it would be really valuable here. Can you diagnose why people don't do that? Is it because it's embarrassing. You're right. It's such a simple thing to do and we don't often do it. Why are we not doing that? It's a good question, right? Ah, but it's also a cliffhanger because we have to take another short break for a word from our sponsor. And when we come back, Katie's answer and more of our conversation about how to change. We all want to know that we have enough energy to get where we want to go. For example, you either have enough energy to run a marathon or you're on the side of the road wheezing. How about your startup? Does it have enough cloud computing to win and handle the really big customers? You might think stable, enterprise-ready cloud infrastructure like Oracle's is out of reach for your company, but Oracle for startups was made just for you. Oracle wants to help you land those big customers, so they're offering preferred pricing on enterprise cloud for startups. Free cloud credits and 70% off their cloud services and with multi-cloud support and no vendor lock-in. So you can build it out any way you want. Oracle for Startups doesn't want you wheezing on the side of the road. They want you to have enough power to scale and land your dream customer. So how do you get it? All you do is go to oracle.com slash go to slash problem solvers. Again, that is oracle.com slash go to G-O-T-O, go to slash problem solvers. All right, we're back. So where we left off with Katie Milkman is that she was talking about asking people for their tactics and then basically copy and pasting them. And I had asked, why don't people do that more often? There's really great research showing that in general, we think other people have more similar cognitions and knowledge to us than they actually do. So, you know, we if you, are like me, live in a city and think living in a city is, is the best, you probably think everyone you see must agree with that. So it's, it's the false consensus effect is a name for it. And because we assume other people know the same stuff we do and think the same things we do, we may underestimate the value of having a very frank conversation where we can learn from them, particularly in this kind of a situation. You know, we understand that someone who's older and has taken calculus might know calculus and maybe we should ask them for help with that. But when it comes to aspects of our lives that are less clearly, you know, I don't have the textbook and you do, I think we underappreciate how much knowledge is stored in friends, family, acquaintances. And that's probably part of why we fail to use this very simple tactic as often Hmm. as we could. Katie, we only have a a few minutes. Uh, Let me ask you, 
as a kind of first step for somebody who might be listening to this and seeing and feeling like some kind of change must be made. They're not entirely sure what it is. Maybe they see some options. Maybe they do not. Where do they start? So actually, I'm not, okay, so let me engage with you for a little bit on on understanding what you're thinking, because mm-hmm. I think one of the challenges I have with that question is it's it's vague in that where yes. you start, if the change you want to make is I want to find a new job versus I want to save more versus I want a new sure. spouse. So I think, <laughs> and I would probably give, you know, one of the big messages of my book and of my research is, well, it depends what are the barriers. That's how you make the change. Mm. I think you're asking... Oh, you, want me to, you want me to give you like a kind of... A canonical example, maybe, would help. Yeah. So let's say that I have worked in a job for a long time or in an industry for a long time. And I feel like I have kind of stalled out in some way. I'm not growing as much as I should. And possibly even I have reached the maximum space in this industry, either because the industry is shrinking or because maybe I'm not the right fit for it or something. Something is wrong. And what I am hearing from people when I complain about this at dinner is that, oh, you should learn another skill or you should do this or you should try that. Or what else do you love or what are you passionate about? And all of those things are computing to me in some way where it's like, I must come up with some kind of change. And I suppose I could pull a number out of a hat, but that doesn't seem like a good way to do it. So what is it? I know I must make some kind of change. I know that there are options available. If I research, I could find some of those options, but I don't literally know what it is that I'm supposed to do with myself to figure out how I'm supposed to change. This is going to yeah, it's great. This is going to sound like the weirdest piece of advice. But the answer is that I would give, especially if you really cannot figure out, like it's not obvious what the next step is. One of the things we do too little of when we're trying to figure out what's the right kind of change or the right next step is experiment. Just actually act on something, try something out, try something different, whether it's asking your boss if you could take on a couple of extra responsibilities or deciding to take a night school class. It's pull the trigger on something because we tend to experiment too little. We tend to explore too little. We tend to be too fast to get stuck in the mud, stuck in our ways. And exploration is great. That's how you learn what works and what doesn't. And I think one of the reasons we're afraid of exploration is we are so likely when we do explore to feel like, oh, okay, well, because I I asked my boss for these changes and responsibilities, now I can't go back or now we can't quit this job because I've made the change, the changes within this job. We need to be more comfortable actually telling ourselves, labeling it, this is an experiment and it's not the end. It's not my end goal. I'm exploring. And so you ideally make a few pivots, right? You try a few different things and treat those as data that you're gathering. It's a data gathering exercise. You're not committing to this is the path. You're trying a few things and trying to figure out is this solving it? Is this solving it? Would I like that? Maybe I'll, you know, maybe I'll try doing some temp work in this area just to see. And that exploration, because we get comfortable in our ways, we like to follow a path we're on. We're too unwilling to pull the plug. If we can get ourselves to explore, we discover really valuable information that most people would miss. And we should then be really ready to quit 
Lots of those explorations should be cut off quickly. Nope, that wasn't right. Okay, let me try another thing. So basically trial and error, you know, computer science is built on this, which is actually my background. It's like, you have to explore and exploit. There's this trade-off, but humans exploit too much and don't explore enough. And that would be my main advice on how to start besides all the things we've already said, right? You know, try to Try to talk to other people and see what's working for them. Go do your pre-mortem homework and right. so on. Well, in, but in also a way, explore. Yeah, in a way, I feel like the advice that you just gave is, is the precursor to all that stuff. You do that, which then gives you some options to start testing. You can't pre-mort nothing. So you pre-mort right. some, you know, so you do, right. a couple, you do a couple of mini experiments. Then you have something that you can see, you more seriously consider, and then you can actually go through the process of like pre-morting it. Is that a fair way of thinking about it. I love that. Though it, it may be also that some of the experimentation can just be done through conversations and that you don't have to actually try every path. So I don't know if the, the very first step is, the first step might be the conversations and then the second step is start when you don't know, oh, this person said do that, this this website said do this, I'm not sure. Experimenting together some data on what works for you seems like a great strategy. Thanks again to Katie Milkman for this great conversation. Again, the name of her book is How to Change. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to Problem Solvers wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Monday morning and you don't want to miss it. And hey, be kind. Pass the show along to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost. And did you solve a problem that would be good for this show? Let me know about it. Visit my website, jasonpfeiffer.com, J-A-S-O-N-F-E-I-F-E-R.com, where you can find my contact information and all sorts of other valuable info. Problem Solvers is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for all all your entrepreneurship needs and even better subscribe to our magazine which is just full of the smartest entrepreneurs solving the toughest problems my name is jason pfeiffer the editor-in-chief of entrepreneur magazine thanks for listening and hey let's go solve some problems